We are starting a brand new series today that is all about storms, particularly storms on the high seas. Now I'm curious, I know we've got a room, we've got a mixed, you know, experiences in the room. How many of you ever been in a storm out on the ocean or on a big body of water? Anybody? All right. Yeah. Actually, there's several of you. I knew you were going to raise your hand, right? Because I just, <laughs> I know you, but uh, I, I was in a storm. I've been in several actually, which means probably I should stay away from boats. But I remember when I was in middle school, uh, we were on a fishing trip. Our family took an annual fishing trip to an area called the Thousand Islands. It is on the St. Lawrence Seaway, right on the border of New York and Canada. And we would stay on the, the American side. And on the other side of the St. Lawrence Seaway was the Canadian side. And we did this every year. There was a, a family from uh, my dad's church who uh, owned it and they would let us use it for free once for one week every single year. So every year for the first 16 years of my life, we went on this trip, this fishing trip to the St. Lawrence Seaway. And a lot of my memories from childhood come from this trip. It was that memorable. And we would all get a day that we would get to go out fishing with my dad one-on-one -on -one early in the morning. And then we would do lots of family trips. And we had two boats there that we could use. One was an old wooden boat. You've seen that like they're beautiful. The people restore them now and everything. But back then it was just a boat. So uh, there was this beautiful wooden boat that we would go on. And, but more often than not, we would go out fishing in the little metal fishing boat, which was just a simple aluminum boat and with a 25 horse Johnson engine on the back of it. And we would go out fishing clean our own fish, eat them for dinner. It was one of the, the best trips. And I look forward to it every single year. And uh, we would go, it'd be our family, and my dad's best friend's family. It was, he became best friends in college. His name uh, was Jonathan Yoder. I am named after him. That's how close they were. Uh, I've told this story before, but in college, they made a pact with each other that they would name their firstborn sons after each other. So true to form, when my dad had his first son, me, he named him Jonathan after Jonathan Yoder. And then Uncle John, as I call him, even though we're not related, Uncle John had only girls. So he didn't get to hold up his end of the bargain. But anyway, so we would go uh, fishing every single year with the Yoders at the St. Lawrence Seaway on, a, on an island called Wellesley Island in the Thousand Islands. And so we, we had our spots. Over the years, we developed our key fishing spots, the places where we knew we could catch certain kinds of fish at certain times of the day. We had the channel. We had a place we called Buddha's Playground, all right, because of this one dude that used to fish there, sat in his boat, just looked like Buddha while he was fishing, all right. And then, but our favorite spot above all of the spots was, was a place called the flagpole. The flagpole was across the seaway on the Canadian side. It was only about a half a mile away from where we stayed, but there was somebody who lived on a private island right there, which I don't know how you get that gig, but that's pretty good. And so they lived on a private island. They had a separate little rocky island thing that had a flagpole on it, and they would fly the Canadian flag. And so we would go fish at, there was a great spot. We would go fish at the flagpole. And I actually have a lot of memories from that one spot. In fact, every time we would go fish, the first trip of the year, we would always go to the flagpole was the first place we would go. And Uncle John, without fail, when we got to the flagpole, would stand up in the boat, proud as could be, with his big life jacket on because he couldn't swim, and he would start singing the Canadian national anthem to the flag. We always wanted him to stop, but it's one of my memories. It's one of the only reasons I even know part of the Canadian national anthem. Oh, Canada, 
our home and native land. Something, something, something. All right. So <laughs> Uncle John used to sing that every single time. The flagpole, that was the spot. And I'll never forget uh, one year, I was probably around middle school, we went out to the flagpole to fish and it was all of us. So we had the, I think the Yoders were in the, the wooden boat because it was safer for Uncle John. And then we were in the metal boat out at the flagpole fishing. And we saw some clouds on the horizon. We knew there were supposed to be some storms, but it kind of looked like they were going to pass us over. We didn't think they were going to hit right where we were. But sure enough, those clouds came right at us. And it took us a while to get all our stuff together. I mean, you got kids fishing. You got to get all your stuff together in order to get out of there. And uh, we didn't have a lot of warning. And before we had even pulled up anchor to head back, the, it was like one of these, you know, one of these storms, almost like we had on, on Thursday nights, right, where it's, it's off on. It just, it goes from nothing to everything all at once. And so we're out in the water and all of a sudden everything just, it feels like it explodes around us. All of a sudden there's wind and there's rain and there's lightning, which isn't good in a metal boat. And so there's lightning and the, the, the water started to churn up, white capping. And I was a kid, so I don't know how good my frame of reference was, but it looked like there were 10 foot swells roughly in the water, probably more like two or three feet. But when you're in a little fishing boat, that's a big deal. And so we decided that after it, it, that happened, we wanted to make sure that we, you know, protected the women's and children's. And so we took uh, all the little ones and the women, put them in the, the, the wooden boat. We pulled the boats together, put them in the wooden boat, and all the guys piled into the metal boat. And so it was me and Uncle John and my dad, and I'm pretty sure my brother was in there with us as well. And they started making their way back. They had a bigger engine and a bigger boat. We had a small engine and a small boat. And we started making our way back. And it took, I, it was half a mile, but I swear it took us three hours to get back. It must have been. I, it may be more, probably more than that. And so we're going back. And as we're going back, the, the, the swells are higher than the edge of the boat. And so they're, they're crashing into us. They're coming up over the bow. We're going up waves and down into waves and water's coming in. And I got to tell you, I was scared out of my mind. Now I'm a, I've always been a good swimmer. I had a life jacket on anyway, but even so, I thought, man, if we go overboard in this storm, even as good a swimmer as I am, even with this life jacket on, those waves are just going to keep battering us. I don't know how we're going to stay together. I don't know how we're going to make it back to shore. I don't, so it was the first time, I think, in my life that I was mortally scared. I literally was in the boat thinking, we might die today. And so we, we pushed back, and I remember my dad encouraging me as much as he could, saying, it's okay, we're going to get back. He didn't know that, but he was saying it. It's okay, we're going to get back. Trying to encourage my brother, who was all the way up in the front, having the time of his life, by the way. Thought it was the most amazing thing. Not me, not careful John. And so, and Uncle John, poor Uncle John, <laughs> clinging to that thing like, it, like, like his life depended on it, because maybe it did. And so, I don't know that I was ever, until, the, until that point in my life, I had never been that scared in my entire life. It was a feeling of complete helplessness. Like we can keep this engine going and we can keep it pointed towards home, but whether we get there or not is not in our hands anymore. And that is a scary, it is a, uh, it is a paralyzing feeling. And I wonder, I know some of you have been in storms on the ocean, but I wonder if any of you have been in a storm in your life like that. 
Maybe it was because of a relationship that you went through that broke up or a health scare that happened to you or someone close in your family, a death that happened in your family, a financial crisis, a career issue or a school letdown. Maybe it's something having to do with sports or, or uh, 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 a certain group that you wanted to be a part of. But you thought everything was going okay. And then all of a sudden it broke loose. All of a sudden, you found yourself in a situation where you're worried that you weren't going to be able to keep your head above water, that the waves were going to keep crashing and they were going to keep suffocating you. And you wondered if the storm was ever going to end and you wondered if you were ever going to survive and if you were ever going to get out of it. And the reality is, I know that even those of you who have been through that in the past, some of you might feel like you're there right now. Where you feel like you are suffocating, like you're being dragged under, you're scared to death. And frankly, if you haven't ever been there before and you're not there now, you will be one day wondering, all you're thinking, all, all that's on your mind is, how are we going to survive this? So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we are going to go through four literal storm stories in the Bible to see how God protected and led and carried people through those physical storms so that we can understand how God wants to protect us and lead us and take us through our metaphorical storms that we have had, are having, and will have. So we're going to start off with really the whole reason I wanted to do this series in the first place. Uh, one storm in particular, and it involves a man named Paul. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with Paul, Paul is one of the great Christian leaders of all time. He wrote about half of the New Testament that we have today. He planted churches after churches after churches, trained pastors, taught people in doctrine, taught them in how to live and all this stuff. He is one of the great leaders of all time. But Paul didn't start off that way. Paul actually started off as a Pharisee, a religious leader of the Jews. And at, at, as he as the Christian, they called it the way, but as the Christian movement began after Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and then ascended to heaven, and Christians started forming the church, Paul was on the front edge of persecuting these new Christians because he believed that they were speaking blasphemy, calling Jesus the Messiah when Paul did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he went and he physically persecuted Christians. In fact, he says himself that he was there standing in approval when Stephen, who was the first deacon in scripture, was stoned to death. Paul was standing there agreeing with what was happening to Stephen. But then one day, Paul, in all of his zealousness, was going to a place called Damascus to persecute Christians that were there. And on the way, he met Jesus face to face in a way that most people don't or will not. He was so overwhelmed by the presence of Christ. It was so blinding the light that it literally blinded him. And he went into the city and he found someone who told him uh, exactly what had happened. When he was blinded by the light, Jesus said, this is me. It's the one you're persecuting. And it was from that moment on, he received his sight back. And from that moment on, Paul was just as zealous for his faith in Christ as he was against it before that. And so Paul was not afraid Paul was not scared of anything, really. And Paul was not, certainly not afraid of any people or what they might think. And so he went to places he probably shouldn't have gone, or some people would have told him he shouldn't have gone, in order to teach and preach. And it got him in trouble. And one day he walked into the temple in Jerusalem. 
And there were people there that knew what was going on with him. They knew what he had done. They knew what he had been teaching. They knew how he had been serving and uh, how, how p- passionate he was in his newfound faith. And they saw him and they hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. And so they started a riot and a bunch of people grabbed Paul and they drug him outside the temple and they started making accusations against him and they started beating him physically. And it became, it became such a chaotic scene that the they, people ran and told the Roman authorities that Rome was in control of the area. And they said, hey, a riot's breaking out over by the temple and you need to straighten this out. And so Roman guards show up and they pull Paul out of the middle of this thing before he is killed by these people. And they take him and they put him in the barracks. They put him in safety to get him out of the way. And there are, these people are still so riled up and they are so mad that there are 40 people who swear they will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. They make that commitment. And then they begin a plot to try and have him move from the barracks and back to the, the temple to be tried or talked to by the religious leaders. And they have a plan to assault him and jump him on the way there and kill him. And then the Romans find out about it and they decide to keep Paul. And they keep keeping Paul because he's in danger. And they keep questioning him. And Paul ends up in Roman, basically captivity or prison for close to three years. Three years, the Jews are trying to kill him and Rome is protecting him and keeping him back because they want to figure out what's going on. Paul's got this really cool deal that helped him out. And that's that he, although he was raised as a Jew, he was born a Roman citizen. So he, he was afforded the protection of the Roman government as a Roman citizen. And so they held him, they held him, and they held him. And eventually Paul said, I want to talk to Caesar. And when he appealed to Caesar, that's a, that's a request that needs to be granted in his situation. And so he was scared to death. And then in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Now this is after the whole riot and the melee. He's, Paul doesn't know what to do or what to think. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, the Lord stood by him. I, that's a small phrase, but it's not a small phrase. That's not a small phrase. The Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so Paul literally had God standing next to him saying, don't worry, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. Now, that's not a promise we all get from God that we're going to get to where we think that we're going or where we think he's taking us. But he literally tells Paul, don't worry, whatever you face between now and that time, you are going to bear witness in Rome so you can trust me between now and then. And so then he goes through this whole captivity. He appeals to Caesar. He actually ends up speaking to a, to a new governor in the area. And the guy was like, listen, Paul, I got no problem with you. I would have let you go, but you appealed to Caesar. So you got to go, man. And so Paul, finally, after two to three years in captivity, with, under Roman protection, finally they agree to send him to Rome. Finally, it's time. And so what do they do? In order to get from where he is in the area of Israel, if you think about a map and picture that, in order to get from there to Rome, what do you have to do? Well, I mean, you could, you could walk it. Right? That's a long trip up through Turkey and Greece and all the way up and around the top. So what do they do? They put him on a ship. They put him on a ship. And the weather's bad, and Paul says, hey, listen, we shouldn't go. <laughs> we, this is not smart. They say, no, we've got to go. 
And so they pile everybody onto the ship and they set off. And as soon as they set off, a storm starts brewing. All right, let's read about what happened. This is in Acts chapter 27. You can see it was way back in Acts chapter 23 where God said, don't worry, Paul, you're going to Rome. Now we're in Acts chapter 27. This covers a large span of the book of Acts. All right, Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 13. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So, you know, Crete is very close to the, to the it's, very, it's dead south of Turkey, all right? So very close to the, that border or the, the coast by Israel and Palestine. And so um, they, the wind was bad. It finally calmed down. They thought, okay, here's our chance. You ever done that? Like you see the storm coming in and you wait for it to die down. It's like when you're in your car, right? And the, it's beating, the, the, the rain is beating down and you're just sitting and waiting for your moment. And the final, they're like, all right, it just let off, go. And then by the time you get out of the car, now it's raining harder than when it started. That happened to me on Thursday night, going into the Granite Quarry Fire Department. <laughs> it's fresh on, my, fresh on my mind. But they thought that they, they thought it was in the clear and they were ready to go. Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon, which uh, is a very well-known wind, basically, that blows across that region. It's actually mentioned in the second chapter of the, the book Moby Dick as well. So it's a well-known wind that would blow across and create storms. Verse 15, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. So basically they just gave into the wind and let the wind take them wherever it was taking them. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. That's the, you know, the escape boat. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. So basically what they did was they took ropes and they wrapped them underneath and tied it all together to try and hold the hull together. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. So they started throwing things overboard to try and increase buoyancy. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, for I believe God that it will be just as it, it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So the message he's giving here probably isn't quite the message they want, but it's a great message. He says, we are all going to survive. God has told me we are all going to survive, but the ship is not. And we're going to have to run aground on an island. And the word he uses there means it's a certain line or an unnamed island. He doesn't know where it is, 
but he knows that it will happen. Then verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come, as that's two weeks, by the way. Anybody been in a storm on the sea in a boat for two weeks out of curiosity? That's a long time. That's a long time. All right. 14th night has come. As we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. That's about 120 feet. They were measuring the depth of the water, okay? 120 feet deep. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So now 90 feet deep. They know they're getting close to land because it's getting shallower as they get close, right? Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, that's the back, and prayed for day to come. They were hoping that the the anchors would catch on ground, would catch on soil, would catch on a sandbar, would catch on some rocks and keep them from crashing into the shore. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, that's the front, so basically some guys decided they were getting out of there, and so they tried to put the escape boat down off the front of the ship in order to get away. Paul said to the centurion, who would be the leader, and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. It's all of us or none of us. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. They said, well, we'll do that then. We'll just cut it away and then you can't get out of here. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. He's trying to encourage them. You got to eat something because we're about to get off this ship. When we get off the ship, you're going to need the strength. So you need to eat. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. They were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground. So they hit some sort of sandbar or reef or rocks or something. And the prow, the front, stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So they were stuck on the front and being attacked from behind by the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Because you understand that Roman soldiers are accountable to the lives of their prisoners with their own lives. So as a Roman soldier, you let a prisoner escape, you end up losing your life. So they figured it would be much better to kill the prisoners so that they didn't get to shore and then get away, and they ultimately lose their life. But the centurion, again, the leader, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest 
some on boards and some on parts of the ship. So they grabbed onto whatever they could. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So they made it. But why? Why did they make it? Did they make it through the storm because they're expert sailors? Did they make it through the storm because they threw cables underneath the ship to tie it together? Did they make it to shore because they lightened the ship? Did they make it to shore because they threw all the tackle overboard? Did they make it to shore because they started dragging the anchors? Did they make it to shore because they got into the skiff and made for it? Did they make it to shore because they they ate something to give themselves strength? Did they make it to shore because they loosed the rudder ropes or they hoisted the mainsail? No. They made it to shore because God had a purpose for them particularly for Paul. And he was not going to allow all of that chaos to kill Paul because he had a plan for Paul. You know, I told you earlier that the reason, part of the reason we did this whole series was because of this story. And originally, I, when I plan out sermons, I plan them out for the entire year. So I sat down in January and I want to do a series right now, four-week series called The Shipwreck Survival Guide. And it was going to walk through this story specifically and it was going to pull out each of those principles. What did they do? What would, when we're in a storm, what would God want us to do? Well, okay, what did they do? Well, first, they lightened the ship. They say, well, if you want to get through a storm, you need to lighten the ship. You know, so I had this whole thing planned out. And, and oh, then they ate and took encouragement. Okay, so if you want to get through the storm, then you need to eat and, and get nourished and, and everything. I had this, you know, four-week series play, planned out. And the closer and closer I got to it, the worse and worse I felt about it. And finally, like a couple of weeks ago, when I was looking at it and starting to prepare for this week, I looked at the, the, the stuff and I was like, well, that's not, that's not actually helpful. And it's not true. And it's not why this story is here. This, this, this is not included in the scripture so that we can see all of these steps that they try to take. In fact, the steps they try to take didn't work. <laughs> Their their efforts were to try and save the ship, but the ship couldn't be saved. What we're supposed to see when we read this story is to see that God preserved Paul and carried him through the storm because he had a plan ultimately for Paul. But he had a plan for Paul, not just after the storm, but in the storm. You see, you didn't see, uh, Paul wasn't throwing cables under the ship. Paul wasn't lightening the load. He did say they threw the tackle off with, with all of our own hands, so maybe he helped with that, but he wasn't the one. He wasn't trying to get into the skiff and leave. In the middle of the storm, he was trusting that God was going to fulfill his purpose for him in the storm. In the storm and after the storm. They survived because he had a mission. You might, you might have noticed when they were in the storm, everybody else is going crazy trying to save the ship. What's Paul doing? Encouraging people. He's looking at them and he's saying, take courage, take heart. We're going to get through this. You guys need to eat something. You need to eat something because we're going to get through this. And when we get through this, you're going to need your strength. Don't worry. We're going to make it. 
He was encouraging them. He was ministering to them. He was drawing them to God. You notice they're in the middle. They've been 14 days in the storm. And he says, you all need to eat something. And he sits down and he takes the food. He sits down, first of all. That's, that's a pretty cool move. He sits down in the middle of the storm. He breaks the bread. He takes the food and he gives thanks. Did you catch that? He gave thanks to God in the middle of the storm for what he knew God was going to do. And they all were encouraged and they all ate along with him. And then he goes on to do some pretty incredible things after that, although he, he will finish the rest of his life in, cap, in Roman captivity. He does make it to Rome, but that's as far as he makes it. He actually... Um, they, uh, the, the ship runs aground and they figure out that they have, uh, they've run aground on, um, is it Malta, right? Malta? I think it's Malta. Anyway, they run aground, uh, they run aground and, um, and uh, the natives there are really nice to them. And there's actually this pretty incredible moment where they all sit down around a fire and a snake comes out and bites Paul, but Paul's like, nah. And everybody's worried that he, that he shouldn't have survived the shipwreck. Like maybe this is his judgment for his sins. And Paul's like, no, I'm fine. And then he has no effect from the snake bite whatsoever. But they take him into town and there's a, the local officials named uh, Publius. And Publius is responsible for the whole place and they take care of them. And while they're there, Paul actually heals one of Publius's um, children Everybody in the city hears about it. Everybody on the island hears about it. They all come to Paul. He has an opportunity to preach to him. He has the opportunity to teach. He has the opportunity to heal him. He has the opportunity to do some really incredible things. And then they take him from that island and they take him to um, Syracuse. Which I feel like is a good opportunity for us to just take a commercial for a second. And, uh, and just prove the point. I feel, I feel like this is necessary to prove the point that God prefers Syracuse over the rest of the ACC. I don't think I've ever made this argument, but it's, it's airtight. Um, so we'll start with the fact, just a little commercial break, okay? We'll start with the fact that um, the, the prophecy about um, Jesus and Satan in, way back in Genesis after, the, uh, after Adam and Eve sin and uh, there's the curse is given, it talks about the, the Savior and it's, it talks about um, that uh, he will um, bruise his heel, all right? All right, that, that Christ will crush Satan's head, but Satan will bruise his heel. What is a bruised heel? It's a darkened heel, right? Almost like tar colored. Right? So that would be, that would be a tar heel. All right? So not a good thing in scripture. Um, the, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, there's, they have all these problems with false teachers. All these, all these false teachers are coming in droves into their church, and, and they're called wolves in sheep's clothing. So when they come in together, what is that? It's a wolf pack. Yeah. So obviously not a good thing, Right? Obviously not a good thing. And come on, it doesn't matter what color the devil is. Right? Blue, red. And don't get me started on demon deacons. Okay? So obviously, but Paul, he goes to Syracuse and spends three days in Syracuse resting and recovering. It's just evidence that God prefers the orange. All right? Unfortunately, he's not helping their football season this year, but nevertheless. All right? He goes to Syracuse for a while and on from Syracuse on to Rome where he gets to preach. And ultimately, he, he writes one of the most influential books on Christian doctrine, in, 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 which is Romans, the book of, to the Romans, because he knew them, he understood them, and he was one of them. But God had a, play, had a plan for him. And even though, even though Paul faced the one, that one mighty physical storm, there are very few people that have ever faced more metaphorical storms than Paul. He writes that, about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When he says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. So this is one of three that we read about. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in this city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, sleepless often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily my deep concern for all the churches. Paul knew through all of that stuff and through the shipwreck that we just read about that God had plans for him. Now he had the, the special revelation of knowing that he had, God had plans for him on beyond. But he knew that God had a plan for him in the moment in the middle of that storm. And that even if the ship wasn't saved, it didn't matter as long as the people on the ship were saved. He knew that Christ would carry him through. And that all of the trials that he faced would help develop him into the person that Christ wanted him to be. He says this in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint but the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He knew. Do you see the equation he puts in place there? That hope is the result of tribulation. Hope is the result of trials. If we go through them the right way. And so what I think we can take away from this and what we need to remember for those of you that are in a storm right now, or there may be one coming on the horizon for you, is that when you're in a storm, trust God's purpose in it. Look for how God wants to use you in the middle of it. Look for how he wants you to serve. Look for how he wants you to influence people. Look for how he wants you to encourage the people around you. I mean, you might be in a storm because of a relationship. The relationship might not be salvageable, but the people are. You might be in a storm because of a, a, a health crisis that's happening for you or for someone in your life. And that health crisis might not get better, okay? But that doesn't mean that you can't serve the people who are involved in it. it doesn't mean you can't love. It doesn't mean you can't serve. It doesn't mean you can't minister in the middle of it. But to say, God, what is your purpose for me in this moment? One of the things we have to understand about life, storms are so disorienting and they can, they can just sap us of our energy, wear us down, beat us down. 
And we're just always waiting for the storm to end, waiting for the storm to end, waiting for the storm to end, waiting for daybreak, waiting for the break in the clouds, waiting for that to happen, waiting for the sun to peek through. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And you got to understand, and I don't mean to be like negative about this or whatever, but although all earthly storms end, not all storms end. And even when the storms do end, there's always another one, isn't there? There's always another one coming. So the goal for us is not to be free of the storms. The goal is to have the character and the integrity and the resilience and the faith to weather every storm that comes. And while Paul was able to say, I know God is taking me to Rome, so I don't have to fear anything that's happening in the meantime. I don't know what God all has in store for me in this life, but I know what's coming after it. And so my mind and my eyes are set on the promise God has given to me that I will spend all of eternity with him because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that I'm keeping my eyes there and to know I've got to weather the storm of this world, but that one day I will stand there with him. And so I'll keep my eyes set on that and in the meantime, minister and serve. So whatever storm you may find yourself in, I want you to ask the question today, what is my purpose in this? What does God want me to do? I'll never forget the other big storm that I was with, I was in. Um, again, it was with my dad, but it wasn't at the, uh, it wasn't at the Thousand Islands. This time we were down at the, uh, the Jersey Shore. And my uh, aunt and uncle, my dad's cousins or whatever they are, um, had a place down at the Jersey Shore. And every summer we would go spend a little bit of time with them. And they had this little sailboat. You know, it's, I mean, it's the smallest sailboat you can imagine, right? Have you ever seen Tommy Boy? It's the sailboat from Tommy Boy, the one where he's sitting in the back. And it's, and, you know, it's, I don't know, it's t maybe nine feet long or something and made out of fiberglass and one little sail. And uh, me and my cousin went out sailing uh, into the bay. And those things don't move very fast. And so we went out into the bay. And as we got out there, we saw the storm coming. I mean, we saw it coming. And uh, it was one of those things where it was like, you see the train coming, but you can't get off the tracks fast enough. There's just no way. And so we knew this thing was going to catch us. And we're in this tiny little boat. And so we're, we're, we're trying to get back as quickly as we possibly can. I'm, of course, no help because I don't know how to sail. But my cousin did. And so he's trying to work the sail and do all the things he has to do in order to get us back safely. And the storm lands on us like you wouldn't believe. And uh, we were, I mean, again, scared to death. That's probably the second scaredest I've ever been in my entire life. Both, I need to stay off boats. And I probably need to stay off boats with my dad but, or around my dad. But anyway, so we... Uh, we were trying to get back, and just as we were trying to get back, all of a sudden we saw the catamaran. They also had a catamaran. It's the two pontoons with the stretchy thing in between. And so the catamaran comes whipping around, and they, these things can move really fast, whipping around and came up right next to us, and my dad was on the, was on the catamaran with my, uh, with my uncle. And, um, and so I was, I was, I was you know, so thankful to see them. And so they, they pulled me off of the sailboat. They let Kevin continue to take the sailboat in by himself because he was an expert. And uh, they pulled me onto the catamaran. And I got to tell you, I was so relieved to see the catamaran. And then we started to head back. And I realized this is actually not better. 
<laughs> is, I mean, we've got these two pontoons in the water, and now the waves are crashing up from underneath, and they're coming over the side. And all I remember, and, and it's not stable, it has no edges on it. You know, it's like a trampoline on oil drums, basically. And so we're sitting on the top of this trampoline, and all I remember is my dad holding me as tightly as he could. That's all I remember. My dad just gripping onto me as tightly as he could and just continually saying, we're going to make it back. We're going to make it back. We're going to make it back. And I just, and I look back on that moment and I say, I am so thankful in that case that my, my father was there and that he was encouraging me and that he was, listen, he was ministering to me in that moment. Some of you are going through storms right now, but listen, you're not the only one going through it. You have friends, you have people in your family, you have other people around you that are going through that thing with you. And you might, in order to get through this storm, you might need to turn your attention away from yourself and turn it towards them to help them make it. And to be able to hold them and say, it's going to be okay, hang in there, you need to be faithful, don't let this phase you, don't let this knock you off track, don't let this take you in the wrong direction, let this draw you closer to God instead of further away from him. Your purpose in that storm might be to encourage the people that are on the boat with you, just like it was for Paul. And so I want you to know you can make it. You can survive. That doesn't mean the ship's going to be saved. But if you're looking for hope in the future, you need to set your eyes on eternity spent with God, not on the world and trusting in it. Look for your mission now where you are. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and thank you for your love and your mercy that even though we failed you, even though we've sinned, you still love us. You sent your son for us. And so we say thank you. And I thank you that, that even though we're sinful and even though we fail, you still have purpose for us. You still have ministry for us to do. You have plans for us. And so we look forward to those plans. But it can be scary because often we find those plans in the middle of chaos. And so I just ask that you would give us clarity that you would give us encouragement and courage. Because I know there might be some people with us today that are going through a storm right now and they, the, it's so disorienting and they don't feel like they'll ever be able to get their head above water, but they will. God, encourage us. Encourage us that you sent your son, Christ, to die on the cross for us, to rise again, to ascend to heaven and to return one day. And we're looking forward to that. So we set our hope on that. We look forward to that. And in the meantime, we ask you to show us what our ministry is. How you want us to get through this. How you want this to draw us closer to you. How you want to use us to help other people draw closer to you. And no matter what we face today, we commit ourselves to you and to your plans. It's in your name we pray. Amen.